Hello, and welcome to Spookies, the Bloodcast. That was Our, a new one. Yes, it was. I've been working on that all month. I knew I was no longer sick when that one came to me. Great. The voice you are very hearing right now is that of my co-ghost, co-host, Naomi. Boo! So as not to confuse it with the posterior. Now, you know I've had all these putrid puns for you, and I've been feeding you putrid puns for me, but there's been a fundamental... The Pussy Kester thing. There's been a fundamental flaw in all of that, which is that I have to explain it before we get on... While we're recording, you don't get to do it live. I've written a putrid pun for you on this putrid piece of putrid paper. Okay. So how it works is... Hold on, hold on. There's the normal thing, and you can unfold it to find the putrid pun. Okay, so as normally, you, as I would you say, yes, yes. my sidekick. And your spooky voice is terrific this week. <laughs> Thanks, my sidekick, Jesse Kester. <laughs> this doesn't even make sense. And I unfolded you have it. To sell, you have to really sell it, these putrid puns. They don't, they don't really work. Got it. But, but when I unfold it, it says, sidekick the bucket. You're, I am your sidekick... The, the bucket, bucket. Got like it. that. You can sell it. Try it. Oh, we're out of music. Anyway, <laughs> welcome to Movies the Podcast. How have you been? Good. How about yourself? I'm good. We've got a lot to get into. We are uh, winding down on the on the the Halloween spooktacular nights fright scarathon 2008 Scream series. 2008. 2008 Scream, like 18, but 8 oh, Scream. got it. You got it. Wow. You got to keep okay. pace with these future puns. They're so fantastic. Got it. Um, and I'm trying to get as many in as I, as I can, because like last week was not, I was not You're popping sick. on all cylinders. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to compensate. Okay. I think, I think you've compensated. And we can move on? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And that's it. That's it. You guys are going to have to wait a whole year for more of for that. For more puns. Yes. But we'll, we'll be here. We'll be here. And in, in, the, the countdown begins. 11 months left. Um, today we are going to talk about what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about this is a special fun and games episode. Yeah, fun yeah. and games. We can kind of take uh, we can ease off the throttle a little yeah. bit and have some fun. Um, we're going to talk about reinventing Pet Cemetery, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have definitely got uh, something, anything else, and I think it's a li- literary, literature based yeah. this week. So get ready for that. You've got yours, I've got mine. Yep. Um, we're going to be talking uh, about Norman Rockwell today, I reckon. Okay. Um, some some uh, passive aggression, maybe. Okay. Uh, what are these in relation to? Uh, no, whatever. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Pet Cemetery. Pet oh, Cemetery. Watching okay. Pet Cemetery. Right. Is, is, uh, I've got questions about E. Nesbitt, and I'm hoping we get to that eventually. Okay. Uh, and and, and uh, prosthetics and mantras. If we can get to all that in our chit chat about Pet Cemetery, that'd be great. Okay. Um, but before we do any and any of that, what I would like to do is ask you the question that is at the forefront of my cerebrum right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have any emotions in the last week? And if so, which one was the dominant one? I did. I'm going to go with happiness. Ooh, that's lovely. No further questions. And yourself? Uh, I experienced um, exhilaration. Hmm. The end. That's a good one. All right. Now that we've cleared up all those (laughs) orders of business, it is time for... 
uh, me to remember that I didn't even set one of the big pieces up for today, which was uh, advice. <laughs> we're going to be talking about advice. Yes. Let's get into advice. We're, we're going to have a segment uh, in this episode, since we're deviating from the usual format for mm-hmm. this Fun and Games episode, talking about what's the best piece of writing advice you've gotten? Was that your question? Best piece... I've gotten some good, I've gotten some bad, but there's some pieces of advice that just seem to rattle around in my mm-hmm. head. Like anytime I'm writing, I'll just, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I should not forget that this person said that thing mm. to me. So I wanted to know like some of the, some of the words of wisdom that were passed your way that kind of guide how you have, have evolved as a, as a writer. And mm-hmm. maybe I'll chuck one or two on the, mm. on the fire pile, on okay. the pyre. <laughs> but you go first. All right. So, um, so I've, I've gotten a lot of advice. I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of writing advice and screenwriting advice out there. Um, I think one thing that I keep coming back to, uh, is a piece of advice that, that has many different applications. Um, and it's something that my, my former boss, uh, at Maverick used to say to me, which (laughs) often it was not meant to be advice. It was, uh, questioning the things, the projects that I was bringing to him. What is Maverick? Oh, Maverick was the production company that I worked for, um, when I worked in development and it's, uh, Madonna's production company, which is no, no longer. Um, it was run by a guy named Guy O'Siri, who's very smart and very intimidating. And, um, and then my boss was, uh, Mark and he, um, I would bring him ideas for things that we could develop. Right. And he would say, okay, that's, I, you know, I, I like where you're going with this, but who's your audience? And I think that question is, is a good piece of advice to keep in mind because you always have to keep your audience in mind. And I'm not saying that you have to write to the market or that you have to write only things that you think somebody else, you know, um, I I guess I'm saying, I don't think that you have to write to somebody else's taste. Mm -hmm. Um, but you do have to keep in mind that if you're writing something with the hopes that it's going to make its way in front of audiences, that there, there will be an audience watching it. And so you have to think about like, you know, just because you have a good idea for a movie, you might be able to tweak that and make it more appropriate or better because it's geared towards one specific um, niche audience or it's you can make it family friendly and then it's a slightly different movie, you know. Anyway, so that was the question that he used to ask me a lot. Um, and I think that that's, it's a good thing to keep in mind both from a business point of view and also from a writing point of view. So it is, I, I do agree with you. And I think like the first 10 years of my writing career, I was the demographic that I was writing for. Mm-hmm. And that's not and large that, enough to make a, a return on any investment. I actually think that's okay. It, as long as you know that, because mm-hmm. I think that um, like we talked about this a little bit with Mad Max Fury Road, right? Which is a movie that just feels like it knows who its audience is and it's doing everything it can to entertain that audience. So I just think that the clarity of that, of knowing who you're writing for, knowing the person that you're trying to entertain with the thing that you're writing, um, the clarity of that is, is good guidance for you in writing something. And I also think, um, it applies to not just what you're writing, but, um, when you're pitching things, like if I'm writing some sort of pitch document, who's reading this is, Mm -hmm. am I writing this for the producer? So I know that they have certain requirements that they want to see, you know, put down on paper, or am I writing this for myself to work out my ideas? Um, I just think, you know, who's your audience is a good question to sort of constantly be asking yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, how you how you pitch a film to the camera team is very different than how you pitch <laughs> it to the acting team and sure. how you pitch it to the producing team. Right, right. Even if it's the same script, it's, you're going to be talking yeah. about different, different aspects. I wonder, I feel like uh, this... 
not that they were misses, but I do feel like this month of horror, I've had more misses than it, like it felt more missy than average mm, I in, think your, in, in your pitches, in my pitches. Got yeah. It. And I wonder if that betrays the fact that I really don't know horror audiences that well, mm. including myself. Like, I don't know what I like about horror beyond the, the prosthetics and the effects. Interesting. See, um, I, I suspect that, um, that you, you love horror so much. I know you're a big horror fan. Yes. I, I suspect that you love it so much that you have maybe not taken as much, um, not, not effort, but you just haven't taken as much, uh, time to sort of study horror because yeah. it's something that you love. Right? And that's what I kick back when I'm watching. It's to relax yeah. and enjoy. It's yeah. not to learn. Right. Right. Also, I was uh, we're going to get into Pet Cemetery later, but what I was thinking about while I was watching it is that horror is kind of a unique genre and this is related to the audience in that the anything mediocre or bad, the audience usually forgives as mm-hmm. long as there's if there's like 20 to 30 good solid minutes in a horror film, the mm-hmm. other hour they don't really they don't hold that hour's feet to the fire. Yeah. Like you can't get away with that in a romantic comedy of an hour of not romance and then 30 <laughs> minutes of super romance. Yeah, I think if you can really scare me in a horror movie, there are other there are other slow parts I'm willing to forgive because you you know spiked that sort of emotion that yeah. I'm looking for from that movie. Yeah. Is it, a, is it that's the other thing is like when when you watch a romantic comedy and we are completely off the but the, <laughs> still on when you watch a romantic comedy you're looking for an emotional reaction but when you're watching a uh uh horror you're looking for a visceral like it's not so much an emotion as it is a like a feeling of fear or a feeling of danger or threat for me that's yeah, just a thought. Yeah. I mean I think I I still lump all of those into emotion, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we were talking earlier about uh, genre, like how do you define genre, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, I I define it by the, you know, the type of entertainment that you're getting from whatever genre you're talking about. And and that has a lot to do with like the emotional reaction that you're getting from that entertainment. So like horror, the type of entertainment you're getting from a horror movie is a scary horror experience, right? Um, from a romantic comedy, you're getting a romantic and funny yeah. and light and, or, you know, and, and that just defines the genre. So, but for me, like for horror, the, the feeling I get is more, it has more in common with something like hunger or a stubbed toe than it does with, with love or sadness or happiness. Mm. Like it's not so much an emotion as it is a physical response mm. to, for me, yeah. that's, that's for me. That's good advice though. <laughs> Who's your audience? And I'll try to keep that in mind moving mm. forward. Do you feel like I've been missing the more outside of horror? I'm trying to think if there are any that I told that ha- were devoid of any audience at all in the pitches. No, I mean, I, I actually think your pitches have been pretty targeted as far as audience i think that um your what was it beach party usa beach house USA. boogie down beach party usa boogie, boogie down beach house usa that's boogie what it down was beach house usa i felt like that one was and probably, i'm hurt that you didn't remember that full title for how brilliant it was it was many weeks ago yeah. um i think that that one was probably the one that felt most specifically to you as an audience <laughs> um because that's a very it is a very it's your sense of humor and it's a very niche sense of humor and type of movie um and and the other ones have felt a little bit more like you were you were coming up with them for another audience. Not uh, not incidental. Not an accident that that was done early mm-hmm. in the program. I was yep. leaning on ideas that I've had before more mm-hmm. towards the beginning and ideas that would appeal to me just because it's a safer space yeah. to kind of work through the the ideas. Sure. And I've been trying to upgrade the the thinking as we move yeah. forward. One one thing that I will say about. Um, 
since we're on the topic of your pitching, um, uh, one thing I noticed listening to the little girl in the woods Mm -hmm. pitch, which was the one that we, that you did with the Babadook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I hadn't noticed, or I didn't, I guess, absorb this at the time, but you said that that pitch could be taken as either a horror movie or sort of a comedic, a Fargo-esque, you know, yeah. Right, right. Error and, of comedy, <laughs> comedy of errors. When I reheard that, I, or when I heard it, I guess, the, when I listened to the episode, I realized, okay, that is probably something you don't want to do in a pitch. Oh, you, you think? You Not know what genre I'm pitching? You don't want to tell the audience, like, you decide yeah, what, no, what this there is. There were two big misses. There was that, not knowing the genre, and not knowing how old... Was it, no, that was a different one where I didn't know how old the kids were. Oh, but that's... I mean, whatever. That's a little tweak. But, yeah. but with um, The Little Girl in the Woods, I think uh, that that you were feeling like you were unprepared with that pitch because you had made some changes very recently to mm-hmm. it that, you know, so you hadn't kind of worked out all the details. And I think that that's a, that's something that not just you, but a lot of writers do when you are feeling insecure about the story, you fall back on comedy. Well, I'll just pitch this like a yeah, comedy, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and then, and then, you know, it's sort of like lower stakes because I want you to yep, laugh, you yep, know, yep, so yep, yep, yep. something not, good to be aware of. Not a position of strength. If that's your decision <laughs> five minutes before the, the pitch. Um, but so tell me what's your advice? Oh, my advice. My advice is simple as can be. Um, there's there's a little bit of a story behind this one. I was, this was back in college and I I received this advice in college and I received it very recently at a Mm -hmm. pitch fest. And I'll tell you both versions of the same advice, uh, back in college, I'm going to try to recall the pitch I was giving my screenwriting teacher, um, which it, this, the, it starts out pretty good, actually. Um, so the story was about a husband and wife couple who were basically like a husband and wife version of Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. which is like, that's pretty, that could yeah. be fun. I haven't yeah, seen yeah. that. And there's a lot of, there's like a lot it. of fun to be had. So we're off to a rollicking start, right? Mm-hmm. Here's where it goes south. Uh, what they did was they found a, a, like they were adventuring and they found a tribe that, um, where they had child sex slaves. So they rescued. Wow. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Where'd the fun go? <laughs> wow. This, Would you yeah, like an oxygen tank as from, I'm just sucking the hair out of the went room? From very lighthearted to suddenly very dark. And they adopt one of the kids and they bring the kid back like 11 or 12 years old. And the kid is so fundamentally traumatized that, uh, that it, the kid is able to suck the life force out of the two adults and they end up killing themselves. Mm. And this child has to walk the earth alone. It's like just sheer drop off from a yeah. cliff. Like we started out, I might dust off the first like seven or eight words of this pitch and yeah. redo it. And I pitched that to the teacher and he said, Jesse, people go to the movies for one reason. Because they want to go home and mash potatoes. Is this story going to get people to mash potatoes? And mashed potatoes was a, was a euphemism? Uh, it okay. was. It, it Just was making for, sure. Yeah, no, no. They didn't want to make a, a starchy <laughs> dessert treat. Not that sure. mashed potatoes are a dessert treat, but you know what I yeah. mean. Okay. It was to go home and, and, and engage in coitus. And then he asked me to leave his office and think of a story that would possibly lead to that happening. That is not advice I've heard before, but I I understand that. You see the core of it. You want to leave your... Now, I don't totally agree with it because there there are movies that I see that make me... That don't put me in the mood to mash potatoes, but I enjoy the movies very much. Yeah, but you're not like... I think Dancer in the Dark might be the most traumatizing film I've ever seen. And... 
That it's, was a Bjork one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really depressing, but it's mm. like that pitch that I gave is infinitely more alienating mm. than than Dancer in the Dark. And why it was not but three or four months ago that I was at a pitch fest pitching something totally different from that one. And the guy I was pitching to, he looked at me and he said, the premise is good. What if you just made it something people would want to see? <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that was that was um, good feedback. I think very but. good feedback. Very good feedback. It was a much nicer way of saying sure. people want to go home and mash potatoes. Yeah, because the same that that pitch from ten years ago is it's the same thing. Like the mm. premise is good. Now just write something people would want. Interesting. So huh. yeah. Okay. So yeah. So write something people want to see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you think about it, that's pretty close to the who's your audience. Yeah. It's sort of a, 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 a adjacent question, I think. So both good things to think about. Yeah. Like keep in mind that you are probably writing for other people to see the story, right? Yes, yes. So. And it's not an exercise in making the absolute worst thing that you could possibly write in your <laughs> lifetime. Let's go. It sounds like now that, yeah, now that we've got it both on the table, this sounds similar. Any other advice? You got one more in your, mm. in your pocket? I mean, advice that I um, would sort of, if I could travel back in time and tell my younger Ooh. self, you know, one piece of advice, it would literally be just right. Because I think that, um, uh, there's a lot of time spent when you, not for everyone, but for people who are trying to get to the point where they can think of themselves as writers, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is a struggle that I think a lot of writers have, but not every writer. Um, there's there's like that hesitation about actually putting things on the page because you know it's not going to be good enough, right? Yeah. And there's that that even if you wouldn't describe it or articulate it as fear, like it's a fear that I'm going to do the thing that I wanted to do and I'm not going to be good at it. So, but the only way to get better is to try it and then see where you can improve. Right. And so there's this catch 22 of like not wanting to do the thing because it's not going to be good, but you have to do the not good version yep, to get yep, better yep. at it. So I, I wish that I had figured that out earlier. I really didn't figure that out until maybe seven or eight years ago. That's yes. Yes. That is very, very good advice. And that is why when I'm not shooting, I will block two hours, the first two hours, the first 45 minutes of my day is running and then two hours of writing mm. and you are there to write like phone goes off, caffeine mm -hmm. goes in mm -hmm. and you just like you jam something out, whatever it is. Yeah. You hit a quota every day. It's a good schedule. And I use freedom. Have you used that? What is no. that? It's a, Ooh, it's here comes some advice. <laughs> well, no, it's a thing you put on your computer so that you can turn it on and then all the oh, websites it, like are blocked. It disassociates everything. Yeah. It's just you and the writing tools <laughs> Because at that point. I do not have self-control. <laughs> so I need some physical or some, you know, actual thing to, to stop me from looking at the internet. Um, some other rapid fire advice, uh, read a book a month, I would say mm, just whatever it is, read a book a month. Um, cause there are so many good ideas you can steal from books, <laughs> <laughs> even ones that aren't in the public domain. If you change their names, you can take that idea. Let's. Yeah. Okay. So reading books is a good, is a good yes. piece of advice. No, but it does not encourage it, people to steal ideas, but you start to not to steal ideas, but the more you read, the more you see, like there are these same story sure. bits that uh, other writers use and uh, they've been time immemorial. They've sure. been in parts of stories. So, yeah, I do think you get, um, I really like the, the feeling and the fact that, um, you know, I can be, my brain, my subconscious can be working on a story while I'm reading other things. Mm -hmm. And so you might just happen to read something in 
fiction or nonfiction or whatever it is, a magazine article that you go, Oh, that's the idea that makes the thing work that I was trying to make work, you know? So I do really like, um, reading other things when I'm, when I'm working on something. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll find genius in it. And the other thing, here's something that that I think about from time to time is when you find genius in some other work, it feels like genius because it's a reflection of something that you wanted to express. Mm. So you'll figure like, it's easier to figure out what you're trying to do by looking at yourself in the mirror of others art sure Ah, that was a a lot of words yeah (laughs) and sometimes like maybe even the universe is like inside an atom and an atom is a whole universe did you ever think about that no um are we good on advice i think i think that's plenty of advice have i derailed it i'm sorry (laughs) then if we're good on advice let's get into pet cemetery is that okay yeah let's do it then it's time for The second talk? <laughs> what are yeah. we calling are this we segment? This? I don't think we had these segments in, the, in the other talk? fun and games I think, episodes. Yeah, because fun and games, are they have no strict, like they're yeah. destructured intentionally <laughs> right. so we can take a break from, yeah. anyway, it's time for the second talk. Yeah. yeah. Let's so. talk about Pet Cemetery. <laughs> yeah. Um, would you be kind enough to just give us a summary? It doesn't have to sure. be perfect or beautiful. Or Good, just, because it's not going to be. Okay. So, and, and funny enough, I think part of the this the difficulty with summarizing this movie is that it um, has some issues in in the yes. structure and yeah. in the story. Uh, so, very basically, Pet Cemetery, is, the movie, is based on a book by Stephen King. Who? Uh, Never l- heard of it. A little guy called Stephen King. He's had some success. Um, anyway, and uh, it's about a family who, that moves to a house in rural Maine and uh, quickly discovers in their backyard is a Native American bur- burial ground bum, bum, bum. <laughs> that has the, the plot power. device <laughs> yeah. that you get whenever you don't have a good one. Um, that ha- The burial ground has the power to basically bring back things from the dead. However, those things that are brought back from the dead are not quite what you buried. Um, mm-hmm. and they have a, have an evilness to them a, or a, a killing instinct. Now quick, quick question. If sure. I may, why did the Indians build an evil making resurrection zombie factory? What was their intent well, with this? this so it's graveyard? been a really long time since I read the book, uh, which I think has much more of the sort of explanation of this than the movie does. Right. Um, and what year was this movie? It was 1980 something. 80 something. Anyway, 80 something. Um, and the movie is now being remade. So there's a new version of it coming out, but the, the one that we watched was from the eighties and 89 and, um, has a lot of problems. Uh, I think in the book, which I haven't, it has a lot of problems and here we are here today to discuss solutions. That's the whole fun of it. So please continue. Um, but so I also read the book, but a long time ago when I was a kid. And, um, I think that there's something about so the, the burial ground was there and then they discovered that it had this ability to, for some reason, the, the ground that they had, I don't know, whatever built the burial ground on had some sort of magical ability, right? Hey, Mm -hmm. it's Stephen King. And, um, and once the native Americans understood that, that it had this power and was sort of this conduit or something, right. Um, to the other side, they stopped using it. Okay. Okay. So the, then, Fast forward however many years, people who live in rural Maine started burying their 
pets there. Yes. And it became a pet cemetery. No, they started burying their pets somewhere else, like down the hill from there in oh, the movie. Oh, right, right, right. But for some reason, Herman Munster knew yeah, yeah. that there was this <laughs> resurrection spot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, yes, the movie definitely has yeah. problems. I don't remember it. Ha- I didn't remember it being quite as bad because I hadn't seen it since I was like eight years old or something. Well, first but. of all, let's 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 go light and then we'll go heavy. Did you enjoy watching it? Whether it's um, good or bad, did you have a good time? Oh boy. I, oh boy. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, I did. I okay, enjoyed good. watching it. I enjoyed it quite did. a bit. There's just the 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 film stock from the sure. 80s, like the way it looks, the way it feels, all yeah. those the handmade cemetery that we spend an entire 3 or 4 minutes in. Sure. It looks great. I love the I just love the look and feel of yeah. films from this era. Yeah. I love uh, uh Fred Gwynn is his name. The guy who played Herman Munster mm-hmm. and is in this love his voice, love, love his, his main look, accent. Love, yes, it's just he's <laughs> fun to when anytime he's on screen, I'm having a good time. Yeah. Um so yeah, enjoyed it. Let's fix it. How okay. can we There's yes. a lot of work to do on so, this. So I just want to preface our discussion yes. by saying that this isn't our typical, like normally we talk about a movie and things that we can learn from it or liked about it. Um, this, our intention here is a little bit different yep. because we, we wanted to do this fun and games episode to talk about um, the idea of like taking a movie that we loved as kids and mm-hmm. how we might reboot that if we were in charge of remaking it. And this was before I realized that they were already remaking the movie. Um, so this is a story that I actually have thought for a while, you know, that I I loved so much as a kid that, um, that I would like to see it remade with better effects and a better story and all of that. So that's why we're doing this. We get a a kind of a two for this way. Cause, um, first we get to, we, we get to do like our fix on it. And in a short amount of time, we get to see how it was actually Mm -hmm. rebooted, which is going to be very exciting. And maybe we can spend five, 10 minutes to revisit this conversation on a future episode. And also I think there's value in this because, um, it's no secret that reboots and remakes are demode right now. (laughs) So it is worth kind of thinking, like looking through old properties and thinking, how would, if I were hired onto this project, how would I approach this rewrite or how would I try to modernize it? So I I think there's, there's kind of like two points of excitement on this, on this, uh, this topic. Yeah. And we, we just discovered too, that this is a this is an interesting bridge from our month of horror, right? Mm-hmm. Oh to, yeah, to yeah. our month of adaptation. This leads into next week yeah. when we start partying with the adaptation. Yeah, so. yeah. So November we're going to do an entire month of adaptation yep. talks. So this is a good bridge, right? Yeah, I think this is perfect. Yeah. So okay. So the movie itself. Here are the things that I think. Um, if I were, here's where I would start, right? To yes. to make it better in a remake. Um, one thing that I think is sorely lacking in the current, the 1989 version, mm-hmm. is any sort of connection to the characters or understanding of why this is happening to them and why what their motivations are really for, like the only motivation you get is dad wants to save um, his little girl from having lost a pet. Right. And so that's what kind of starts the whole snowball. And, and the entire first half of the movie it doesn't, it doesn't really feel like anything's happening because it's just like family moves to rural Maine. Yep. They're getting to know the fact that they have an ancient 
a Native American burial ground yes. in their backyard, and then not a lot's happening. The family, yes. the family goes away, leaving just dad at home alone. Without um, ever really explaining why dad isn't well. They say the fa- the, his yeah, wife's father hates him, but we never know why he hates it. He's a freaking doctor. Right. Like, how much better can the daughter do? Sure. And so he, the, all you know, basically a device to get dad left home alone, which is sort of our break into two in that movie. And um, and then dad home alone. Now you said sort of our break into two. I feel like there might be some contention. Well, I think. Structure. Please keep going. Yes. We will come back to a sort of break into two. Yeah. Later. So so he he's home alone. Uh, daughter's cat gets hit by a truck Mm -hmm. and he's like, Oh no, what am I going to do? I can't, this can't, this can't happen. Um, and the neighbor says, well, I know there's a better way to handle this. And he takes him to the ancient native American burial ground and they bury the cat. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so there just isn't, there isn't a lot of, uh, reason there isn't like, I don't, you know, I don't know why, um, this is such a big deal. Like why the daughter can't have lost her cat. I don't know why, I, you know, all of this is going yes, on. I don't I want a big issue of contention with me is that a medical professional is paralyzed when talking about death with his <laughs> sure, daughter, which sure. makes no sense considering yeah. what profession he has. Right. Exactly. So, so what I'm thinking is you give the family a stronger backstory, mm-hmm. um, which creates the stronger motivations for why they're doing the things they're doing. I'm thinking probably something like, um, you know, because, because this is always my go-to, like maybe the mother has just had a late term loss, Preg- mm-hmm. you know, lost pregnancy. She is sort of fragile dealing with the fact that she's just lost another baby. Um, they go to rural Maine to basically get away from death. Yep. Um, do know, we need two kids? I think so because, okay. because you need one to sacrifice later. Um, it, at the midpoint. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Okay. So just as, as far as plot but goes, from you're going to need that the, one. The, the daughter is, Kind of neg- in this in this story, she was kind of negligible in the second half of the film. I do think that is true. I'm not saying we have to delete her, but she would either have to have something to do, or there's no yeah. real reason to have two. Yeah, so as I'm, the old saying goes, <laughs> I'm on the fence about her. Well, I'm willing to keep her for now and see how okay. it goes. Okay, but maybe those the two existing kids will be combined. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I so so basically giving the family that sort of backstory. So putting the pressure on dad to sort of hold the family together Mm -hmm. and to not let them experience any other losses. Right. I think that that gives something like that, something along those lines gives him a stronger motivation to, to start burying dead things in, uh, you know, haunted ground. Here's another thing that really got under my skin. Not if you get what I mean, it's, we, he didn't know what was going to happen when he buried the cat. Sure. Like, he has almost no autonomy for the first 45 minutes of this yeah. film. It's very Yeah, you want it to be a stronger... Squishy, if you would. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You're using that correctly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you want it to be a strong... You want it to be a stronger choice on the part of the main character, right? Because um, the things that the character chooses show us... What, who they what, are, it, well, what their yeah, values are, exactly. what their goals are, exactly. what their fears are. Exactly, it shows us what they value. So he he's willing to... Um, you know, to sort of risk, I don't know, whatever curse he might bring on in order to hold his family together. Right. And in order to sort of save his wife from, you know, the spiral of, of depression that comes with losing a baby or whatever. But so, so yeah, so I think, you know, giving a little bit more of a backstory to kind of give them some real emotions and motivations would be where I would start with this. Um, and then I think actually the plot isn't, um, 
like just the mechanics of how the plot works, because as we alluded to earlier, the one of their kids is hit by a truck at the midpoint. And so yes. that's the big turn that really makes it take the serious, like it goes from being, you know, uh, something spooky haunting their lives, right. To, Oh, now we're, now we're burying humans in here. Yeah. Um, it's a real escalation of the plot. And I think that that, that would still work a lot. What I would like to see in the first half of the movie is uh, more of a an emotional descent from the mom mm-hmm. and more desperation from the dad with like, I gotta hold this family together any way I can. I'm trying to keep my wife maybe from killing herself. I don't know if she's losing it or if this is a normal emotional reaction. You know what I mean? Like just yeah. a little bit more struggle in that way. Um, and then increasing, cause you want to get the genre stuff in there, increasing spooky things happening. Yeah. Like I think in the current version, you have dad who sort of sleepwalks into the pet cemetery. Maybe we give that to mom so that mom is have experiencing, like he doesn't know if she is, um, communing with the dead or if she is just depressed or if she's off her rocker, you you know, she could find a lot of peace in that pet cemetery after her loss and like become uh, irrationally obsessed with, with, time in in that space. And that could be really beautiful and really, really uh, haunting. And this is another reason why I think you you do kind of want to keep the other kids because it puts more balls in the air for dad to take care of. Yeah. And also if mom becomes in that first half of of act two, if he wants to save her, but he's worried she might be a threat to Mm -hmm. the kids, I think that gives you some good tension to play with and gives them some stuff to do, you know, plot wise. Uh, And then one of the kids dies at the midpoint and then it's everything's escalated if and she he's, does, you know, trying to save, uh, trying to save his family any way he can. Yeah. The so. closer she is to the edge, the more desperate he would be to keep right. her away from the edge, which would push him to make these right. very, very irrational as they stand decisions. <laughs> right. Right. You know, uh, I, yeah, there's something ahead. very telling mm-hmm. that we have not even mentioned my uh, my favorite character, the ghost, the good guy ghost, I, I who is completely it, inconsequential. It, in my notes, I was like, first thing to go. <laughs> Fun though he is to look at. Oh my gosh, useless. So so pointless. Such a pointless <laughs> yes. character, except to give give characters information that they're not even necessarily getting because the audience sees the information, but the characters are like not even reacting to him yes. all the time. Yes. So, po- so pointless and strange. And I did not understand it. I, and I'm thinking like maybe the motivation for on the part of the creators, right. And Stephen King wrote the original adaptation of his own book. Um, and he was on set a lot. Like he kept the team hewing closely to his, his screenplay. Got it. Yeah. And it, um, it shows, it does <laughs> feel like an, a novel adapted and you're not getting any of the internal monologue yeah. that you would need to understand. So I'm thinking that ghost you know, the, the thing that I thought the ghost was going to do, right. Mm -hmm. Because when we, when we see him, he's actually a death on the father's table, basically. Like he's, he, the dad's first day at work in rural Maine as a doctor, uh, there's this accident victim brought in, he dies on the table and then, you know, dad can't do anything for him. And then he sort of like has a spooky, you know, there's a jump scare there, right. Where the, the dead guy isn't really dead. And he yeah, tells him that he yeah. knows his name. He knows the, the doctor's name. of a man's heart is right. mumble, mumble, mumble. Yes, exactly. He gives him this whatever clue or, uh, premonition, but not really a clue. Yeah. Cause it didn't really have any bearing right. on the rest of the and, story. And I couldn't even hear exactly what it was saying. Yep. So anyway, so I'm thinking right there with you, if the point of that character was to, a, give us a jump scare and also um, sort of, 
you know, get dad sort of moving along this path of, um, of, of being curious about death and things not really being dead. Cause it seemed like that's what initially the ghost was doing. It was like showing up and dad being like, but wait, what are you here to tell me? Right? Like, why are you, why are you haunting me? Um, I think you can achieve that in other ways in, you know, you can, you can put those questions in the character's minds without Casper, the friendly ghost showing up good guy ghost yeah uh yeah yeah he was he was wasted especially when you have the the main character another thing that they didn't use was that he was a doctor like there's so Mm -hmm. much conflict between a a rational man of science and the supernatural world he's experienced that they never didn't explore and i actually love that detail i would keep that he was a doctor because i think that there's something really interesting about um how much more helpless you would feel to say to protect your your wife um, as a doctor, right? Like if she's had a, a medical, uh, trauma mm-hmm. and you are a doctor and you couldn't do anything to stop yes. it, like how much more power, powerless oh, yeah, you would yeah, feel. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And the, in the one way you should have and could have yeah. been for her, you weren't right for whatever. Right. Right. So I think it adds because of the pressure. limits of man, exactly. mankind. I think it adds some pressure on him to like, to, you know, make him more desperate to save her and his family. Um, any thoughts? Uh, plenty, plenty of thoughts. I think we're we're really, I think, in very much agreement about what what doesn't what doesn't work in this film. There's uh, here's a little bit of advice, if I can, if I may. Sure. Are you aware of the television program Rick and Morty? <laughs> I know of it. I, to okay. be honest, I haven't seen it. So some of the best screenwriting advice I heard from it, I think it was with Dan Harmon, mm-hmm. uh, who's, I guess, wh- whatever the animation equivalent of a showrunner is, is it still yeah, a showrunner? He's, he's still the showrunner. Okay. And he said, like, whenever we have an idea, like if we have an idea for an episode where, uh, the Rick and Morty are going to hunt, hunt vampires, you take that episode long idea, you compact it to the first five minutes, mm-hmm. and then you say, like, where does it go from here? Mm-hmm. And this feels like a movie that really needed to take mm-hmm. the whole movie, smush it down into act one, and mm-hmm. then start really, like, chopping mm-hmm. those themes up and really exploring what it all meant. Yeah. This film, uh, here's what I was thinking what, uh, while I was watching it, was it... After an hour of nothing, it really hits the ground running. (laughs) But there's a full hour of nothing before it hits the ground running. But I will say this is something that we have talked, we've sort of touched on before in our previous conversations during this horror Mm -hmm. horror month, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's something that horror movies often do, which is um, that turn into act two doesn't always feel... Yes, yes, let's do this now. (laughs) Doesn't always feel super strong because a lot of times... um, our, our sort of pervasive wisdom about screenwriting and how to structure a story, right, is that at the break into two, we should understand sort of the character's goal and what they're trying to achieve so that they can pursue that in act two. And a lot of times in horror movies, it doesn't really happen that way because what the characters are trying to do is simply to survive the situation yeah. that's been set up in act one. So the good version of that, I think we've seen in The Babadook and in A Quiet Place where those movies set up very clear situations that the characters were dealing with. And then the turn into act two doesn't feel like a huge turn, but but we know what's going on. Like we understand that here's the situation, here's who's dealing with it, what they're dealing with, why it matters and, and really what the threat is, what the danger is, right? What the stakes are. So, um, so those movies did it very well. And I think this movie 
didn't do it, Absolutely <laughs> which, is, did not. which is the problem. So there's you to touch back on, you know, what's the break into two. You don't really know what's going on until the midpoint. That's the first time it sort of feels like, oh, now something's happening. When he takes the the kid up to get buried, that's like the closest thing to an act to a decision from the main character right. that would lead us into more chaos and adventure. Right. But that happens way too late to be an act yeah. two break. Yeah. So the, the kid gets hit by the truck at the midpoint and then everything after that is, um, you know, dealing, dealing with that. And is all, it feels much more urgent after yeah. that happens, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Cause we understand, yeah. you know, what he's trying to do. Um, there's, trust me, there are still problems in the second half because, oh, yeah. because no, then no, you no, have no, no. mom trying to come back and the ghost sort of helping her, Holding but the we door don't know at the why. Airport. airport rules were so different yeah. back in the eighties. It was a different time. True. True. Um, but yes, so I, I, I can't remember where we went off the rails there, but yes, talking about, um, a lot of horror movies and do this and do it well, which is like setting up that clear situation so that even though the break into two may not feel like a super strong, okay, I know what the characters are trying to achieve now subconsciously you do understand here, here's all the context you need. And now we're going to watch them try to survive it. Right. And that gives the movie structure. Yeah. What would you say? Uh, I've got my example. What is a good film example of a really strong break into two? A really strong. Yeah. Like there's two? no bones oh about it. This is, we're doing it. And here we are land. We're going for act two now. Taken. Okay. I was going to national treasure. <laughs> okay. It's, yeah. It's is so that, simple. I mean, I don't story. remember what it is, but I believe that about they're that going movie. to steal the declaration yeah. of independence. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Or whatever the it nonsense makes sense because is. Because that is the, that is the spine of the story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In taken, it's like, Oh, my daughter's been kidnapped. I'm going to go get yeah, her back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are both. So, uh, it, I think it's just the running policy here on, on spookies. The blood cast is, that uh, that National Treasure is probably what we should all be studying anyway. <laughs> the Wibberleys will be very happy to hear you say that. I, I love the stories of... of, of uh, is it Benjamin Gates? Is that Nicolas Cage's character? Uh, I don't know. Uh, You're the expert on it. Uh, apparently not. Um, <laughs> let's have a little bit of fun, shall we? Sure, can sure. We? Who would you cast? <laughs> well, funny enough... Um, I would totally cast Jason Clark. I think he's wonderful, and he is actually in the remake. So oh, lucky me! How easy! <laughs> Who's Jason Clark playing? Is he? The... Uh, he plays the dad. Okay, okay. Yeah. That dad just reminded me of of uh, Nathan Fillion. The yeah, I kept trying to place him. I was like, why do I? Who do, who is this guy? I've seen him in other things. I was like, he looks like a guy who was on Melrose Place, but I don't think that's him. And I could, I, I could look it up. No, that's okay. Okay, it's we don't need to. <laughs> Ooh, uh, uh, and and who would be Herman Munster in your mind? Who could possibly carry that mantle? Um, gosh, I don't know. Do you have a? I do not. I was trying to think of of someone, anyone. Maybe Alan Alda could oh, could carry that weight. Okay, I'd go with Alan Alda. Sure. Okay. Cool. Done. Uh, <laughs> can we talk? There's something that was rattling around in my mind. Was sure. uh, like how obvious the names were. Like having uh, character information encoded in the names mm-hmm. like um the the dad is is uh, uh lewis creed mm. like to to lose faith in mm. things and the the son is gage creed like to measure faith in things i did not pick up on that but. just like it, it felt very like a writery yeah telegraph and that information what was the other thing uh just so let's let's bang through. I set up some things at the beginning. Yeah, I'm, I want to bang through them as sure. quick as possible. Uh, th- th- that's Stephen King fella. He's just like Norman Rockwell. Like <laughs> it's such a fictional Americana yeah. world that he lives in. It's like a Thomas Kincaid painting, mm-hmm. only for spookiness. Yeah. But it always feels like really 
uh, exaggerate. Like John Philip Sousa is not what America sounds like, but it's what we wish America would sure. sound like. Yeah. Um, what uh, the, the prosthetics? What prosthetics? All the prosthetics. I love prosthetics. <laughs> that that spinal meningitis. Oh yeah. What the? Why That's was a, that so a that, fella? That is. You know, it's a good question. But so that that actually brings up a, a good question. If we're talking about how would you remake this? What would you do with that whole um, sister storyline? Zelda story. Yeah. Um, either drop it or, uh, find some way to resurrect Zelda. We could also lose the wife killing herself with cancer unless she's coming back as a ghost zombie or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know that the Zelda story had much bearing on it except as a, as a means to showcase that creepy painting they had in the background for a good 15 <laughs> minutes of the movie. So funny enough, when I saw this movie as a kid, right, Mm -hmm. and my parents were laying down on the job here, they let me watch this when I was like a young child. This was not so (laughs) bad, though. I mean, it's 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 like Beetlejuice, but a little more serious. True, good point. In terms of spookiness. Okay, we won't judge my parents, but um, we can. We can make this uh, (laughs) parents the judgment podcast. I I remember Zelda being the scariest part of this movie. Like when you open the door and see Zelda, and she's all hunched over and twisted Mm -hmm. and sick. That that's what made an impression on me as a kid. So I feel like there must be something there to to mine. Um, and I do, I do kind of like the speech that the mom gives about, um, like the, the sort of guilt and shame she's lived with knowing that she, she wanted Zelda to die because it would be easier for her. Not because, not because she felt mercy for Zelda, but for herself, it would be, it would make her life easier. I, I kind of like the darkness of that. So I would like to find a way to still use it. I'm not sure how it ties into everything else yet. Maybe she could hear the voice of Zelda in the pet cemetery mm. or feel closer to that part of her life when mm. she's down there. That could, Or maybe Zelda takes the part of friendly ghost and becomes the thing haunting her. I don't know. Totally we'll could. We'll see. We'll work that out in development. Yes. <laughs> Do you think that that old Stephen King fella, I was watching it thinking that he uh, he leans on certain things a whole lot. Like it felt very shiningy to have the mm. the old man who knew all the secrets of the spooky world and would kind of feed it into sure. the kid's ear. And Well, you know what's funny? Did, maybe it was just me, but I thought Gage, the little mm-hmm. boy, looked very much like the kid in The Shining who does the... the oh, Red Rock. Yeah. Yes, 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 there was definitely that. <laughs> uh, what else was there? Oh, Spinal Meningitis. That's another shining thing that he was really playing with. The girl I, in the bathtub, the old hag or I, something. I bet you I bet you Stephen King has an experience in his own past dealing with spinal meningitis. I'm sure he talks about it in on writing somewhere. I'm just yeah. not recalling it. So Okay, okay. You know, we writers tend to mine certain themes and experiences over and over. Like you're, you're working through stuff when you're writing things or you're attracted to certain stories for their, for their yeah. meaning to you, you know? So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there were repeated themes in his work. And seeing this really did make it, it felt like a permission slip to lean into preoccupations. Like mm. if, if there are things that are on your mind, just roll with it. Like sure, keep the, working them out. The trucks in maximum overdrive and the trucks in uh, <laughs> pet cemetery, like the, it's the same thing, but but just keep keep exploring it. You'll, you'll, you'll get there eventually. <laughs> what um, else was on your your pre mantras? I loved some of the mantras. Dead is better. The bottom of the truth and the soil of a man's heart. Just mm. like really nice turns of phrase, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, you get that when you have a writer writing a film. Yeah, yeah. You also get a lot of 
a lot of other, th- other monologues, a lot of as- <laughs> yeah. assumed internal monologues that yeah. the audience has no idea what the character For is thinking. For as much of a fan of Stephen King as I am, I think, um, I am, I'm, I'm sort of a fan of his in a nostalgic way. I loved reading those books as a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, I loved Pet Cemetery. I loved Carrie, even, even though it you know, it scared me. I love Christine, even though that scared me. Um, I liked being scared by his books. Um, I think, uh, you know, I hope they do a good job with the remake of this because I think that Pet Cemetery has all of the elements to be a really cool horror movie, which is why I wanted to do this and talk about how you would remake it. Um, I just want to see it done well. Nothing in this conversation has made me feel anything but excitement for the premise and Mm -hmm. the possibility of this. And, and I do think that the film, it didn't drop the ball. Like it had a, for me, it had a good feeling and I enjoyed the 90 minutes I spent in that world, yeah. the hundred minutes, whatever it was. But, but I don't think it would hold water today. If yeah, they released sure. that film, if they released exactly that film today, people would assume that it was supposed to be like a spoofs mm. uh, pastiche of eighties <laughs> horror, just cause it's so in that cut, yeah. in that groove. Well, I'm pretty sure when it came out in the eighties, it bombed. Oh, it did. <laughs> yeah. It was, a, it was not a popular movie. That's so. a relief. Yeah. So they'll do a good job on the remake, hopefully. So anyway, I all think, right. Are we good? I think we're good. Then that means that there can only be one thing that's next. And that is. Something, anything else. <laughs> All right. What have you got? Now, the movies are off the table. Mm-hmm. We are fully Done realized adult human beings who have interests, passions, uh, hobbies outside of the film industry yep. that we spend 15 minutes brainstorming before each episode <laughs> because we do not actually have hobbies outside of the film industry. What is your topic today? What do you, you know, want to throw I'm down? Game time decision here. I'm going to switch it up on you. You were okay. expecting a book. I'm going to give you a different book. Whoa! <laughs> Only because we're earlier in this conversation, it made me think of um, this book. Uh, it's called Mindset mm-hmm. and it's by Carol Dweck and it's a nonfiction book. Um, it has a very kind of cheeseball sounding uh, s- subtitle. It's it's the actual title is Mindset, um, something like how to how to, you know, reset your mind for success or something like that, okay. which sounds very like cheesy and like Wait salesy. A is this a self-help <laughs> It sounds like it, but it's actually not. Um, she is a, uh, some sort of psychology researcher or something at like, uh, I want to say UC Berkeley or Stanford or something like that. And, um, the whole thing is sort of about the difference between growth mindset and fixed mindset. And as someone who grew up in a home with a tiger mom and a dad who was, uh, wanted to be a lifelong Marine. What is a tiger mom? My mom's Chinese and it was, you know, she was very strict about okay, the things okay. that I had to do. Uh, my mom is still Chinese, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I don't think we've ever talked about this. Oh, well, there okay. you go. And um, anyway, so, so... It's growth mind... What was it? Growth, growth and mindset fixed? versus fixed mindset. Okay. And so, so all that to say, all this history about my family to tell you that I grew up with um, uh, a sort of expectation of perfection, right? So I was Mm -hmm. a, I like to say I'm a recovering perfectionist because I grew up, you know, expected to get straight A's and play the piano. Yes. And (laughs) of course, Um, didn't mean to insult you there. (laughs) Um, but you know, these were, these were the sort of the standards and, and, um, to, to be specific, I don't think it's a bad thing to expect good grades from your kids, but the, I thought you were just like inherently brilliant and (laughs) 
Wow. Now I know you had to put some work into it. That takes the pressure off a lot. <laughs> well, no, but I think the um, the idea of emphasizing the outcome versus the process is a very damaging one. And so, and that's what was emphasized in my childhood was you get straight A's mm-hmm. um, by hook or by crook, right? Yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. and you, you know, you play the piano <laughs> at, at, like at the recital the best yeah. and you do all these things the best, right? Like the pressure is on the final result, not on the joy of learning or the process of um, trying something and not being good at it and then trying again, right? So there's, there isn't that resilience that's built into you when you're, when you're taught to enjoy the process or not even to enjoy the process, but to respect the process, right? Uh, so I didn't get any of that. And here we're going to blame my parents again. No, um, but I do think uh, reading, reading the book Mindset totally changed the way I see um the ability to learn new skills mm-hmm. and the ability to improve at things. Which is why we're going water skiing as soon as we're done recording. <laughs> um, probably not. Wait, but do you water ski? Do you already do I, that brilliantly? I, I don't swim, actually. Okay, okay. Well, that's why we're not going water. Please continue. Yeah. I will not interrupt. But so I think that this book was very important for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pivotal for me, and I think it could be valuable to anyone who has that pressure to be a perfectionist, um, who feels the pressure to turn out you know, perfect outcomes, mm-hmm. um, it takes the pressure off because you, you realize that really what it's all about is respecting the process and that the, you know, the way to get better at something is to keep trying and failing and taking your failures and learning from them. So that was pivotal for me. Now let's, let's back up a little bit. This is sure. not a therapy session, but no. I have, I like, I, I want to, uh, I was grown. I, I was raised uh, very much without a tiger mom. It was uh-huh. uh, explore your your happiness, and as mm-hmm. long as you're not hurting anyone, uh, just pursue pursue the best ways to make the most people happy that you can. That sounds lovely. Uh, it, it is delightful, but it has left me, I think, uh, with inca- no marketable skills. With <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't have to say it like that. I'm no, but I mean, when you when you look at the two sides of this table. Um, e- you've got uh you've got more uh, like a stricter focus than i do and i'm kind of mm. more like hey this will be fun and what if we do that and isn't that a neat <laughs> idea and i wonder like um i'm sure there's a happy medium there, there somewhere is, but if if i had been raised with a more strict like be excellent or don't even bother and then eased into a kind of loopier free mindset <laughs> later on in life would i be ahead of where i am now mm. And uh, the we'll never know. follow-up question is, do you think that you are today less happy than you would be if you had mm-hmm. had a childhood more like mine? I, I think that's a good question. I, I don't think I'm less happy than I, than I could have been. Mm-hmm. I do, though, think that I have... Uh, I, I don't know if, this is a, if there's a correlation here, or I don't know if there's a causation here, Mm -hmm. but there is a correlation to, um, the change in my mindset from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset to becoming happier with, um, the things that I pursue, you know what I mean? Because I don't feel, I I think I feel more satisfied just pursuing things versus, um, excelling at things. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. 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 Well, I wonder, like, we're talking internal, external, like pursuing is an internal adventure. Excelling is comparative by nature. Like you can't excel without other people to 
be better than in the right, room. Right. And I think that's one of the, that's, that is, you know, one of the differences in the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset is like success isn't the thing that you necessarily want to measure. You want to mm-hmm. measure effort, you know, and that's, and you'll, you'll be more satisfied if you're oh, measuring yeah, yeah, effort. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it's so. also growth measurement, like measure uh, when, when you're trying to evaluate whether or not you're doing a good job, measure yourself against six months ago and against a year ago mm-hmm. and against three years ago, right. not against other people who are currently doing better than you right, right. now. Right. And we're always looking up the ladder. Like yeah. anyone with, with even the slightest shred of ambition, has their eyes fixed up the ladder and not right. down. So if you're comparing to who's above you on the ladder, like you're just going to lose yeah. 100% of the time. You're always going to be behind the people right. above you on the ladder. Right. Do you th- rec- um, Oh Wow. Okay. Uh, so um, that's my something, anything else. That is, that is something else. <laughs> Opened up a can of worms there. Um, last question on that. Sure. Do you think that you are quantifiably a better person than I am? <laughs> Can you quantify something like that? Uh, I would say yes and yes. Here's my something, anything else. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm not a turncoat like some people here who <laughs> promise A and deliver Y or uh, Z or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you exactly what I said I'm going to give you. Okay. And that is, a, uh, I'm, I'm going to advocate for the classics. Okay. Um, here's the thing that happens. Well, first of all, let me feed this to the camera. 100 years of solitude, baby. That's the what I'm reading this week. Um, nice. I think I haven't read it. You're right. You are a better person than me. Uh, no, no, no. I meant the yes was that you are. I, I think quantifiably you are probably a better person. That's not true. We'll, we'll, we'll break it down. We'll do that fun and games. One day we'll measure everything that you and I have done in our lives and give a point, <laughs> point awards depending on the merits. I, I sense a perfectionist relapse coming on. <laughs> oh, here. We, oh, this is going to be fun. We're going to see the worst uh, in both of us. Um, let's not play Monopoly or Scrabble ever. Cause, uh, um, classics, classics, classics for whether it's Shakespeare or 100 years of solitude or any of these or Martin Scorsese, any of these, mm-hmm. uh, these, these kind of like big balloon, I, uh, pieces of art, mm-hmm. take Martin Scorsese off. This is something, anything else. He has mm-hmm. nothing to do with this dialogue. I think people get like intimidated by them or there's kind of mm-hmm. like a, a monolithic presence to, to the, to the classics. Yeah. Do not fall for that trap of the mind. Like the classics, Shakespeare was, he, he's like Tarantino of the age. It's murder, it's sex, it's betrayal, it's dirty jokes, it's mm-hmm. fun as hell. Mm-hmm. Hundred Years of Solitude, so much fun. The second time, the first time I read it, I'm playing catch up. Like the book is so wild. Every three pages is a completely different mm-hmm. feature film's worth of ideas. Mm-hmm. So you're playing catch up. The first time you read it, you're just like struggling to keep pace with the book. Second time is when it finally came alive for mm-hmm. me. And I'm really like just having fun with the wackiness of it. So don't be afraid of the classics. Yeah. Yeah, Good recommendation. I will add it to my list. They're fun and silly. And they're, I think like there's more silliness in the classics than people give the classics Mm -hmm. credit for. Sure. Yeah. Because you think immediately, you know, of a classic and you think sort of stodgy. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Monocles. (laughs) All Um, right. Good job. Yay. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that winds it down for this episode of the fun and the games. Um, let's do something I always, always forget to do. And that is, uh, if people enjoyed the ideas that you were putting on the table, where can they find more of your ideas? Oh, yes. You can find me on my, you can find my website mm-hmm. <laughs> at, uh, writeandco.com. It's W-R-I-T-E-A-N-D-C-O.com. Um, and they can also join the Screenplay Lab Facebook group, which is a fun discussion place. 
We should put a link up for that on uh, moviesthepodcast.com, which you can go to now to, to subscribe on iTunes. And you should be reviewing us on iTunes. And you can su- subscribe on Stitcher. And you should be reviewing us on Stitcher. And you can listen to the episodes right there on the website. Um, and you sh- don't have to do that. <laughs> go with the, the two aggregates, iTunes or Stitcher, because we get uh, better better metrics if you listen through there. Cool. Um, other than that, I can't think of any reason that you would want to find any anything I'm doing so <laughs> we'll skip all that um, and it's uh, it's time to, to bid a fond farewell to this uh, 2008 Scream Halloween Fright Scareathon Spooktacular yeah um, it's been it's just bittersweet uh, I don't see any sweetness in saying goodbye to it <laughs> I'm excited I, to move on to adaptations I think that'll be a lot of fun discussion yes yes and uh, join us next week as we discuss Chappaquiddick yeah I'll say that in a full voice Chappaquiddick is the film <laughs> for, for next week so go ahead and give that a look-see um, and we're going to ride out on part four of five remember when I said there are eight Freddy Krueger movies mm-hmm. there are nine Freddy Krueger oh. movies we've got one more movie for so next you week. had to add a part to your I, to yeah. your song yes okay. there has to it's going to be this is a five part nine film summary wow. that nobody asked for this is four of five now um, and we'll ride out on that and we will see you all ends next week yeah bye bye I'm exhausted, but I'm moving like a 4 a.m. crew call. Robert keeps it going, he's a consummate goofball. Time for new nightmare to resurrect Fred, making this the seventh time he's coming back from the dead. Heather plays herself as do Robert and Wes, with a couple cameos from the new line execs. The film is reflexive, Wes will not get sedentary. Hey, look at that, it's a kid from Pet Cemetery. It's a hall of mirrors where nothing is clear, except that isolation breeds from invisible fear. If it sounds intellectual and overly heady, remember that this entry's really not about Freddy. A standalone adventure that depends on the franchise, the ship is so erratic you would swear she capsized but craven's at the helm and that's thoroughbred pedigree freddy's not the enemy he's more like an effigy villain is ambiguous the loss of the self the effect that that can have on generational mental health the function of evil when the form's not apparent and the fears of being powerless when you're a parent sentimental dread existential threats exponential stress incremental deaths it's about the pains ignored even when they're expressed now i'm raving for craven friends west is the best Time to bury my face in a Supreme Court case Freddy v. Jason Spoiler alert We start out in the boiler with the Springwood Slasher The Sweet Dream Spoiler Freddy's been forgotten and he's super upset Because he can't kill children if the children forget Freddy Krueger impotent The premise is goofy and a little bit loopy Hold up, boobies Freddy hires Jason just to get the bodies piled up To make the fears accumulate and get the nightmares riled up So Freddy can return as convoluted at best Cause I've seen Jason X Hold up, sex Too many characters and all of them new None of them are given much special to do It's impossible to care. Like a cartoon, there's the cornfield rave where hold up, dolly zoom. Caterpillar Freddy climbs inside of the brain of fake Jason Muse, dumping hypnosil down the drain, immobilizing Jason with a dose of immobiline, which starts act three inside of a killer's dream. Fight in the dream, then they fight while awake, they fight in the boiler on Camp Crystal Lake, then when Kelly Rowland tries to diss Freddy to death, I feel a wave of relief, there's only one film left.